We're continuing our study in the book of Galatians as Paul has been dealing with men who have come from Jerusalem trying to preach a false gospel in the church. The men had come here from Jerusalem preaching that in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven of your sin, that there was a laundry list of laws that you had to complete. They were teaching that you had to submit yourself first and foremost to the Old Testament covenant of the law, keeping holy days, keeping a kosher diet, keeping all kinds of rituals involving the sacrifice. And the thing is, Paul had been to these churches and he had preached the truth of the gospel of Christ. That it is not by works that man is justified, that it is not by works that man is saved, but only through faith. Salvation is the gift of God, and we receive that gift by believing in his son, Jesus. And that's it. There is no code to keep. There is no custom that must be followed. It is simply placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And as we have seen, when that happens, it means we are changed from the inside out. So our adherence to the law is no longer a mandatory rule of salvation, but now it is the byproduct and the benefit of salvation, that we are now creatures who love God, that we are now creatures who want to please him. We are creatures who want to live according to his rule. And we are changed, and we are transformed. And that's what Paul had preached to the churches of Galatia. He had preached them the gospel. They had received the gospel, and now they were being pulled away. And what we are going to see in our passage today, looking at Galatians 4, verses 12 through 20, is that we are going to see Paul's heart broken for these people who he loves so dearly. And one of the things that I see so clearly laid out in this passage is just the heart that Paul has for pastoral ministry. Because as he is looking at these people and as he is looking at, at their situation and he sees what's happening to them, it grieves him. So imagine how a church who so understood the gospel, who had treated him so kindly, who had treated him with such love, could now suddenly be pulled away by men who do not have their best interest at heart. I mean, that just wrecks him. I mean, imagine those of you who have kids, you, know, you, you raise your children in your home for years and years and years and years, and then all of a sudden you see you know, another boy or another girl come and begin to kind of woo them and want to date them and pull them away. And as you look back and you look at the character of this young man or this young woman who has come to approach your children, I mean, more often than not, they really don't measure up to the standard you have, do they? That's kind of the common experience. You know, I joke with my wife all the time. I say, my son, Nate, he can go out and he can have experiences and he can date and he can do whatever he wants. My three girls, though, like, they're not going to leave the house, okay? You know, we have a strict rule. They can start dating when they're 35, okay? Why do we do that, and why do we think that way? We think that way, well, because we love our children, and we want to protect them, and we want to make sure that anyone who is coming in order to pull them away from us does so with their best interest at heart. And that's the language that Paul uses all throughout this passage of Scripture, he says that these Judaizers have come to lead them away. 
He uses the phrase and says that they're jealous for them or that they are zealous for them. He uses the language of a young couple in love, trying to pull these people away from the true gospel. And Paul sees this happening and he is afraid because he knows that to be shackled to the law is death. And he knows to be shackled to the law that they will forfeit any gain they may have gained from the cross of Christ. <clears throat> and so we see in this passage that Paul begins in this section, verse 12, reminding them of the relationship that he had with them when he was present with them. In verse 12, it says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. So what Paul is reminding the churches of Galatia here is the circumstances under which he first came to them. See, we get the idea from this passage that it wasn't possibly Paul's original intention to go to these different places and to go and preach in these different churches. But he says, it was because of some bodily ailment that I came to you. So there is a bodily ailment, some kind of sickness, some kind of condition that Paul has that forced him to stop and spend time among the churches of Galatia. Well, if you know anything about Paul from the New Testament, he's not going to hang around a place too long before he starts preaching about the resurrection. So while he is there recovering, he's talking to people about Jesus. He's talking to them about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He's talking to them about salvation by grace through faith. And he is building a church while he's there. And while he's there among these people, he looks at them and says, listen, you were so kind to me. You were so nice to me. You were, you were so gracious to me. And even though my ailment was a burden to you, you didn't cast me aside. And a lot of people kind of argued what this ailment that Paul had was. Many people say that this is the same ailment he's discussing when he talks about his thorn in the flesh that he wished would be removed from him. Others say that they believe possibly it had something to do with Paul's eyesight, that maybe he was unable to see very well, as we're going to kind of see evidence for that a little bit later in the passage here. But the whole point is, is that when Paul was there, it wasn't like he just had the flu and needed to rest for a week and then he was up and on his way. No, the ailment that he had meant that the other people in that area needed to help him. They had to take care of him. Maybe they had to lead Paul by the hand as he went from place to place during this portion of his life. Because he says that my ailment was a burden to you. And yet, how did the people respond? They responded to Paul by saying they received him as an angel from the Lord. They received him as a messenger from the Lord. They even received him as Christ Jesus. Not Paul saying that I am Christ, but you treated me with that much love, that much respect, that much kindness. And as I preach the truth to you of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as I preach the truth to you of his death, burial, and resurrection, you came to faith and you believed. And because I brought that message to you, one of life and hope and the forgiveness of sin, you treated me so well. You treated me with such kindness. You treated me with such love. And Paul urges the people here saying, listen, become like I am because I have become like you are. What does he mean by that? 
Well, when Paul is telling them to become like thy am, he wants them to follow in his example. And what's the example that he set before them? He's already mentioned it in the book of Galatians. In the, earlier in the passage of Galatians, he looks at the people and says, hey, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And this life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that's how Paul lived his life. He didn't live by the law. He didn't live by the customs of the day. He didn't live in strict observance to Jewish ceremony as he ministered among the Gentiles. But no, Paul became as they are. When he ministered to the Gentiles, he ate like the Gentiles. He drank like the Gentiles. He slept like the Gentiles. He dressed like the Gentiles. Why? Because the shackle of the law was no longer on his neck. Because he was free to live. He was free to do as needed to be done to bring the gospel to these people because salvation doesn't come from the law. It comes through faith in Christ. And as he had faith in Christ, and as he believed in Christ, he was no longer required to keep the Jewish covenant. He was no longer required to eat the same thing. He was no longer required to wear the same thing. And he said, I have become like you are. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he phrases it like this way. I have become all things to all men that I might win some. See, Paul cared so much for the gospel that he wasn't going to let some cultural norm stand in the way of his love for the people. And so he says, just like I became as you are, just as I lived like you and ate like you and fellowshiped with you, follow my example and understand that the life you live is not a life you live because of the law, but it's a life you live because of grace and the forgiveness of sin. And as Paul preached this message, they received him, they loved him, and they treated him so well, which is why he is so heartbroken and perplexed in the next portion of the scripture. In the next passage of scripture, he says in verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. So here you can almost hear the heartbreak that Paul has as he is addressing these people. He says, what became of your blessedness? What, what came, became of your good treatment towards me? See, as the Judaizers entered into this area and began to preach their false gospel, they also began to attack Paul. They attacked his right to be an apostle. They attacked the gospel that he preached. They attacked the life that he lived. They tried to belittle him before the Galatian church so that the affection that these people had for Paul would be removed from him and instead be given to these Judaizers who had come from Jerusalem. And the affection that the church in Galatia had for Paul was huge. He even says here that, listen, you would have gouged out your eyes for me and given them to me. Again, this is the reason a lot of people think that Paul had issues with his eyesight. And what Paul is saying here is that if, if you giving me your eyes could restore my sight, if you giving me your eyes could help me in some way, you would have done it. 
You didn't hold anything back. You loved me that well. Why then now do you believe these lies that these men tell about me? Because these men come forward not with your best interest at heart. It says in the scripture that these men came and they pursued them. They were zealous over them in order that they may lift themselves up and puff themselves up which you see a direct contrast to the way Paul lived his life as he ministered all over the world. When Paul would enter into a new area, when he would enter into a place where they had not received the gospel yet, he followed the same pattern over and over and over again. Paul would enter into town and he would beeline straight for the synagogues and he would begin to teach and he would begin to preach to the Jews there about the resurrection of Christ. And when those either accepted or rejected him, he would then move on to go and begin to preach to the Gentiles. And he would tell them about the resurrection of Jesus and salvation that can be found in his name. As people believed in faith and they came to Paul, he would begin to teach them. He would begin to train them. And as he trained them, a church would be established in that area. And what would happen when Paul established a church? Would he sit around with all these people who loved him and cared for him? Would he sit there getting the accolades of those that he had led to Christ about how great he was and how smart he was and what a great teacher he was? No. He would appoint elders in that place to lead the church. He would then get up and he would move on to the next place to do it all over again. Why? Because Paul wasn't about lifting up his own name. Paul wasn't about getting glory and accolade for himself. Paul was not interested in making himself famous he was interested first and foremost in bringing honor and glory to God and lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. So he looks at them and he says, do you see the difference between these Judaizers who have come and the gospel that I have given you? I didn't want to lift myself up. I didn't want to pat myself on the back. I only wanted to make much of Jesus and his cross. But these men, they lure you away. They make much of you to alienate you, to pull you away from the gospel, and to make much of themselves. I'll tell you, that's not the heart of a pastor. That's not the heart of a minister of God's word. Because first and foremost, we desire to make much of Jesus. And you can sense Paul's confusion in this passage as he looks at them and says, that, that why is it that I have suddenly become an enemy because I gave you the truth. And I've got to tell you that when I read that passage of scripture, like that sticks in my heart a little bit, because that's an experience that I have had time and time and time again. You know, a lot of the times people will come into church and they'll be looking for answers. They'll be looking to answers to life's difficult questions. Maybe they're looking for an answer to a difficult passage of scripture. Maybe they've got a trial in their life and they just don't know what the right thing to do is. And so they come forward and they say, hey, I, I've got this situation. Please, what's the counsel that you give? And when it comes to biblical counseling, uh, I kind of follow after Martin Lloyd-Jones philosophy of biblical counseling. And his philosophy of biblical counseling was really simple. He simply said, you know, what's your problem? What's the Bible say? And why are we still talking? And that's it. Because once you know what the Bible says about it, really there's nothing else to argue. Because if the Bible says we should live in this certain way and do this certain thing, 
That's the way that we should live. And you know what? There are people that have come to me at times in their life with difficulties or trials or misunderstandings or things like that. And I'll sit down and say, well, in our Christian walk and according to the Bible, this is what we should do. We should live in this way. This is the standard that God sets. This is the standard of the word of God. And there have been several times in my life where people walk away from that conversation and they don't come to me for advice anymore. Because the advice that I gave or the counsel that I gave while coming from scripture isn't always what people like to hear. And that's because the Bible's hard. Not hard to understand. We, guided by the Holy Spirit, can read his word and understand the word from ourselves. We don't need some interpreter for us, but it is very difficult to live by. It is hard to walk the path of righteousness that the Bible lays. Because do you understand what the requirement of your life is according to the Bible? It is perfection. And man, you hear that and you think to yourself, I'm not perfect. And yet God lays out a holy standard in his word for us to follow. You know, you look at just the first commandment, as we talked a few weeks ago about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I can't do that perfectly every moment of every day. You sit and you look at some of the other laws and some of the other rules and some of the other things you're supposed to do. And you think, okay, I think I can grasp that. Scripture says, do, do not commit adultery. I think I've got that one down. Right up until you go and read the words of Jesus where he says, you know, if you've ever even looked at someone with lust in your heart, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And you think to yourself, man, I messed it up again. The standard of scripture is so high and so lofty and so mighty that we are all looking up at it, wondering to ourselves, how are we ever going to get there? And yet, the gospel is that God, seeing our plight, seeing our shortcomings, seeing how far we were away from him, came down to this place. He made a way where there was no way. And when Christ died on the cross for us, our sin and our shortcomings and all those places where we are so unlike God in so many ways went straight to the cross to be nailed and destroyed permanently. And the righteousness of Jesus earned by his perfect life, is now credited to our account. And so as we come to the cross and as we come to the Bible, as we believe in the gospel of Jesus, we don't believe that there's a list of works that can save us because we have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ. However, once we come to him, the standard of perfection remains. Now, does that mean that we're going to live perfect lives once we're saved? Absolutely not. <laughs> we can't do it. You know, as I look back at my life and I look at like the timeline, if I start right now and I start to go back in time, like thinking of the place, okay, when's the last time that I sinned? I probably have got a good 25 minutes, maybe. And in that 25 minutes, there's probably a whole bunch of stuff I don't even know about that are sinful thoughts and ideas running through my head. We are so drenched and drowning in an ocean of sin. We can't live that perfect way that God expects us to. And that's why the grace of God is so mighty 
and righteous and wonderful because it's not about my works. And suddenly this life that I live, I no longer live in the flesh. I no longer live in my own power and my strength. In fact, it's not even I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In this life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. What does that mean? It means moment by moment. I live in faith and understanding that even though I am a wretched sinner, that Christ's sacrifice is enough for me, and that is what will provide me eternal life. That's what will let me survive judgment one day, not because I am good, but because he is great. And it's his life that my judgment comes, not by mine. And, and that's a wonderful exchange, and that's the gospel. And Paul looks at them and says, listen, if you want to follow this gospel and you want to follow this Christ, you've got to lay down everything that would give you an ounce of pride or an ounce of standing. You've got to lay down your works of the law. You've got to lay down your righteous attitude. You've got to lay down this idea that I can perform and do enough tricks and do enough penance and serve in enough of a way that suddenly is going to look, make God look at me and say, hey, you did enough, good job, come on in. We have to leave all that behind. And that struggles in our heart. Because we like lists. We love lists. You know, one of the best things that my wife does when she either goes on a trip or goes off the house is she sits there and she says, I have a list for you. <laughs> and it's itemized, you know, where it's, it's, hey, here's the cleaning things that you need to do. And here's the projects that you have around the house. And here's some other things that, you know, if you get all these things done, here's some more. You know, the last time she went to Florida, she gave me two lists. There was a must-do list and a could-do-if-you-love-me list. Right? And that's what I had. And I look at the list, and I think, this is going to be great. Because I can check the things off the list, and all of a sudden, man, if I do all the things on the must-do list, I'm okay. No one's going to be mad. But then if I get the stuff on the could-do list done, oh, then it's going to be great. And I'm going to earn favor, and I'm going to earn points, and it's going to be this wonderful little system. And, and we like that. There is no such thing in the gospel. You cannot earn the affection of God by checking things off a list. Said my prayers this morning, read my Bible this morning, went to church today, helped my neighbor today, check, 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 check. None of them make God love you anymore. Because in this way, God loved the world. He sent his son. I don't know if you understand this or not, but he sent this son a long time before any of us were ever born. Which means when he sent his son to die for you, he loved you perfectly. And no matter what you do in this life, no matter what actions you perform, whatever penance you try to do, he's not going to love you anymore. He's not going to love you any less. He's not going to love you any more or less than that moment he declared he would send his son to rescue his people. And all you got to do to access that is give up everything. Give up any claim you have on righteousness. Give up any work that you could perform that you think is going to make you right before God. As Paul says, consider it all rubbish. Leave it behind and press on towards the greater goal of knowing Christ Jesus trusting that his death is sufficient for you. Trusting that his death is the only thing 
that is sufficient for you. And we hear that message and we don't like it because we want to earn it and we want to strive and we want to wrestle. We want to get to the end of this life and we want to be able to say, look at what I did and look at what I accomplished. When the cross stands there and screams at us, you've accomplished nothing, I did it all. And as Paul stands there to the church of Galatia, he says, that's the gospel that you were preached. That's the gospel that you were given. That it's not an earned righteousness, it is a gifted righteousness coming through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he says, and now because I tell you that truth, you hate me? Because I've taken away your ability to pat yourself on the back and look good in the community, you hate me? Because I've taken away your ability to boast in your own works and your righteousness, you hate me? Don't you understand that by boasting and relying on those things, you are walking into your own grave? You are walking into death. And oh, his heart is just broken. And he, they're being led astray by these people who don't even care about them, who don't want good things for them. They only want to look good in the eyes of men. And Paul sees that in their lives. And he is absolutely wrecked. And he is absolutely heart broken. He continues on in verse 19, and you can just hear the affection he has for these people. He says in verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. Paul sees these people as children who are being born. And he says, once again, here I am in the anguish of childbirth, waiting until the image of Christ is formed in you. Now, when Jesus met with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to him and, and he, gave him, he gave Jesus compliments. It's a really odd exchange if you look at it in the text. Because Nicodemus comes to Jesus and said, you know, you must be a man of God because if your God wasn't with you, you wouldn't be able to do the things that you can do. And he pays this in respect. He doesn't ask him any questions. And like you think to yourself in that moment as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, what's the proper like response to something like that? You know, what's the polite thing to say? You know, you'd think that Jesus would be like, you know, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. You know, that's not what he says. He looks right back at Nicodemus and he says, unless you are born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Because Jesus knows why Nicodemus is there. He knows the questions he really wants to get to. So it's as if Jesus says, listen, let's just cut to the chase and let's get down to business. If you want to enter into God's kingdom, you want to enter into eternal life, you want to be forgiven of your sins, you must be born again. And as Paul preached the gospel to the people in the churches of Galatia, and as they came forward and they began to learn, he sat there and said, oh, look, here these people have been born. Here these people have been born into a new life. They've been made a new creation. He thought, this is so wonderful. This is so good. And now as they are being led astray, he has that question. He says, here I am in the anguish of childbirth again. Because, man, if you'll believe something that's not the gospel, if you'll be led astray by something that's not the gospel, if you'll give your life to something that's not the gospel, maybe I was wrong. Maybe you were never born again. Maybe you were never saved. Maybe I've run the race 
in vain, as he said a few verses ago. And he says, I'm just perplexed. I don't understand how you would ever walk away from the gospel. Now understand that from where Paul sits, he's unsure. Paul doesn't know their heart. Paul doesn't know the condition of their heart and their soul in that moment. God knows. But Paul looks at them and says, if you're going to go and shackle yourself to the law, then salvation can't be in you. If you're going to go shackle yourself to some kind of works-based system where you're going to earn your own righteousness, then you don't understand the gospel. And you haven't received the gospel. And so I'm just so confused and I'm so heartbroken and I'm in anguish because, oh, I thought you had it. But now here we are back again at square one. Now I think that there is a lot of pain in the church for this exact reason. I think that we see that there is a lot of people and a lot of ministers just experiencing anguish and struggle in their work because as they go and they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a lot of people in churches who are showing up to church for all the wrong reasons. Some people show up to church because it's a cultural thing. It's just what you do. My grandparents went to church. My parents went to church. They brought us to church. Now I've got kids. I don't want them to be horrible people. Better bring them to church too. And then we come. There's some people who come to church because they think by coming to church that they're making God happy. And that by sitting in the pew or sitting in the chair and listening to the message that suddenly God is going to shine favor down upon them. There are other people who come to church because it's a social event and it's a time where you get to see your friends and you get to fellowship and you get to talk and you get to chat. The thing is, is that none of those things are the reasons that God gives us for why we come to church. See, we come to church because the scripture says that we are to be equipped for good works that he has in advance for us. We come to church to hear the proclamation of the gospel and to submit ourselves to that proclamation. We come to church and we bring people to church so that they may hear the word of God and be born again and saved. We gather in this place because we understand that the gospel requires our entire lives. And we desperately want to be more like Christ. We desperately want to serve him better. We desperately want to live in a manner worthy of the calling that has been placed upon us. And so we come to church and we say, God, I want to know you more. I want to understand your word better. I want to pour out my heart to you in worship and praise. And it doesn't matter if there's a thousand people here or five people here or two people here. We're going to come because your word is good. And your spirit is powerful. And we will come and we will adore you. And we will submit to you. We will learn your ways. Then we will go out into this community. We will go out into this world proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Making disciples so that you may become more known and more famous in this world. That's why we come to church. We come so that we may look more like Jesus. We come that we may serve him better. And we come that we may worship and adore the one who has saved us. And so Paul sees these men who have come into the church that he founded, that he started. He sees them pulling people away to a false gospel that leads to death. And he says, my little children, I am so confused. Why would you do such a thing? You ever see your children make a mistake? 
And I don't mean like, oh, they put the glue on the wrong side of the worksheet or, you know, they colored on the wall or something like that. But especially as they get older, you watch your kids make these mistakes that, that are just mind-boggling to you. You see your children make mistakes that are going to wreck their life and the lives of their kids and the lives of their friends and their families. And you sit back and you see that coming and you see them walking down that path. And you look back and you say, how could you do such a thing? Like, my child, my children, why? That's what Paul feels here. That's what Paul feels as he looks at these people who he has led to Christ, and they're wandering away. So what do we do in those situations? What do we do in those moments where we see those things happening? Well, we do what Paul has done. We remind them of the truth of the gospel. We remind them the truth and the reality of the way God has set up this world. We remind them that no matter where they have gone, no matter what sin they've committed, and no matter how far they have wandered away, that it is never too late to come and be born again. It is never too late to come to the foot of the cross to look to Jesus and say, his sacrifice is sufficient for me. I believe and I trust and therefore to enter into that newness of life. And while we are reminding them of that truth, we are praying consistently that God will work a miracle in their hearts. That God will lead them to that point of salvation. That God will lead them to that place that says, hey, this is the truth that I bank my life on. And why do we do that? We do that because we love them. We do that because we care about them. We do that because no matter what sins have been committed in the lives of those we love, they're still part of our family. They're still ours. And so we do that. And that's for friends. That's for kids. That's for parents. That's for, a, that's for anyone in our circle of influence. If we love them, we proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because it's popular, not because it's going to win us accolade, not because it's going to make us look good, but because it's true, and it's because it's what God's word has commanded us to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this is the only hope that we have. We thank you that it is not a reliant thing on our own righteousness or our own works. We thank you that it is not based on our performance, but it is based solely on the cross. It is based solely on the sacrifice that has been made for us. It is based solely on what Jesus has accomplished in his great love. We ask, Lord, that as we live our lives every single day, that we would not be pulled away by teaching that tickles our ears. That we would not be pulled away by ideas and concepts that seem really satisfying, yet lie in contradiction to your word. We pray that you would hold us fast against a culture that wants nothing to do with you. So that when we stand before you one day, you will look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank you that we have hope to survive judgment because of what Christ has done for us. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.